A warning beforehand, if any of this sounds weird, it is because I had music that I got copyrighted and had to be edited and taken out. Those songs were Just a Girl by No Doubt, A New Rest for the Wicked by KG Element, Knowing Me, Knowing You, ABBA, Walking After Midnight, Patsy Cline, One Way or Another, Blondie, Lover's Rock, TV Girl, and Black Sheep, Brie Larson's version. I hope you will take the time to listen to those. Later, I'll put the links for them in the description so you have the vibes. I I promise the next episode will be much less jumpy and weird. But without further ado, let's get to the podcast. Hello! Welcome to my radio show, aka Podcast with Music. I'm your host, Morgan Wade, and this is Morganisms. A monthly podcast that is around 30 minutes long where I talk about whatever three topics I want and play some good music in between. Now put your phone down and enjoy the show. I don't intend for you to sit here and stare at the cover for 30 minutes. Unless you want to, then pop off. My intention is for you to be doing something. Draw, drive, go for a walk, clean your house. I don't know. Something to unplug. And remember, you can always pause and come back. So, I figure, before I get into the spicy stuff, a brief, a brief introduction is in order. My name is Morgan, and I'm from a small town in North Carolina. I'm a very creative gal, and I've wanted to make a podcast for a while. I have many, many interests, and this is an excuse for me to talk about them. I hope you enjoy. Topic 1. The Met Gala. Specifically, men's fashion. My first topic today is the Met Gala. At the time of me writing the script for this, it is September 17th, so a week, question mark, after the Met Gala. I'm honestly not sure how many days ago it was. It's been a week. I'm not really qualified to talk about the Met Gala because until this year, I'd never actually given a shit enough to look into it. But I followed New York Fashion Week and designers since I was in elementary school and I've done past Met Gala research. Now that you know my qualifications, the 2020 Met Gala was something. The theme this year was, in America, a lexicon of fashion, which is so broad, and I think that causes some of the problems that made this gala disappointing overall. That and no gala last year due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but just the theme, I don't know. It doesn't give me biggest fashion event of the year i saw something about a horror theme met gala and just imagine if i don't see any lemaine lena and ain there it will have been for nothing her designs are so gory but if i had money i'd have like five things check her out on insta insta at l e m a n e underscore her stuff really is the coolest i think in recent years the 2018 met gala Heavenly Bodies, Fashion, and the Catholic Imagination is one of the best. There were so many amazing looks. Blake Lively, Cardi B, Zendaya, Chadwick Boseman. I encourage you to take a look later if you're interested. Okay, our topic, because it's not talked about enough, like at all, is men. Our men at the Met Gala. So... At the Met Gala, you aren't technically supposed to wear a tux, but people do. So with this no tux rule, we can go ahead and eliminate P. 
Pierbalo Piccoli, Christopher John Rogers, Channing Tatum, Alexandre Berman, Michael Kors, I'm really disappointed in some of these, Lil Baby, Justin Bieber, Swizz Beats, Teiko Atiti, Juan David Borio, Corey Gamble, Stephen Curry, Wes Gordon, Zay Posen, Kit Harrington, Adrian Brody. Adrian Brody? All those Wes Anderson movies he's been in, and he has a plain tux. Anyways, J.R., James Corden. Okay, okay, so this may be an unpopular opinion, but I don't hate James Corden. I just like he's annoying. Moving on, Brooklyn Beckham, Tom Ford, Heron Person, and Charlie Schaefer. That's half a page. Women keep the world running and men can't even dress up for the Met Gala? Men, do better. I'm not going to be discussing any sort of suits, so Timothy Chalamet and his converses will not be the topic today. Hate me if you want, but knowing my taste in movies, he will probably come up again in this podcast. So if you are upset, slay your rocker. I actually lied, and I'm diving into two tuxes, but overall, most are irrelevant, hate to say it. The two tuxes are Elliot Pages and Hamish Balls, which Hamish Balls is such a banger name, oh my gosh. Elliot Pages' Green Carnation was inspired by Oscar Wilde, and the fit itself is pretty boring, but queer people who honor queer history at the Met Gala of all places are always going to get a mention from me. That That's just how it is. And Hamish Bowles, Bowles, Hamish Bowles, is giving spike-haired Charlie Chapman whatever it's giving. I love it so much. The hair, the suit, the shoot. It's just amazing. Okay, but like, the real question is, why did no man dress up as a luxurious pilgrim? in a luxurious pilgrim outfit. It was right there. The iconography is so American. That's what I would have done. There are so many looks, and to keep this podcast from being two hours instead of 30 minutes, I'll just hit the highlights. Other than suits, the most common thing for men was cowboys. List including Pharrell Williams, Shawn Mendes, Maluma, Ben Platt, Leon Bridges. Yeehaw, I guess. My favorites were Maluma's, Pharrell Williams, and Ben Platt's. Although none of them gave me Met Gala. It was more like expensive Halloween party. And looking at the picture of Ben Platt, it makes me think of the song Jack and Diane. The next category is boys, in quotes, in dresses. And... Like I said, list including Pete Davidson, Troy Sivan, and Kenneth Nicholson. They all were serving like legitimately good looks. But again, at the Met Gala, Pete Davidson was by far my favorite out of these, but I recommend looking all three of them up. Before I get to what I really want to discuss, some honorable mentions slash underrated looks to check out are... Jack Harlow, Kirby Jean Raymond, Gibeon, I love his a lot, Miles Tamley Wetson, Corday Dunstan, check them out.
then pop back in. There are some I feel like just need to be talked about. There's one, and I don't remember who wore it, but it had two big orange diamonds, like the shape diamond. What's going on? Where's the theme? I just have so many questions, and I needed to get that out of my system. Moving on. Tyler Mitchell wore a colored suit with a sports reference on it, and to me, it was like Sierra's football dress. And I just think it's odd how they're the only two who really reference sports that are all-American, like football and baseball. Their creativity was lacking, is all I want to say. Actually, Virgil Abloh kind of did that, but he added some Donnie Darko Rabbit x Easter Bunny vibes with a skirt and Carolina Blue. It's a lot, but I actually don't hate it. He gave us something, at least. Some of the outfits were odd, but I like that because I'm kind of odd, and it's the Met Gala. Frank Ocean Shrek Baby. Shrek was, in all actuality, a cultural reset. What's more American than Shrek? Like, certainly not fireworks, certainly not eagles, not hot dogs, no. Shrek. Evan Mock with the gas mask? We're gonna be needing those soon, so he made a point. And same thing for Kid Cootie. Street style is a huge part of American culture, especially for black Americans. And he had a neon thing going on. Which was actually something we saw a lot of this year, which could have something to do with the recent, although now probably dead because trend cycles are so fast now. Dopamine slash neon color trend going around TikTok. If this did carry over to the Met Gala, you can at least say they aren't called influencers for nothing. And now, finally, we are to my favorites. There was lots of talk about Dan Levy's outfit being strange, and I was initially like, yeah, what the heck is that? But when I thought about it, what I, you know, me, I actually really liked it. I do. It sticks to the theme, and it gives me Met Gala, which is the most important. But my point stands. I said queer history always gets a mention, and this man, along with Miss Nikki Tutorials, owned it. The art on Levy's outfit was the art of AIDS Act Up activist David Wojnarowicz whose art was about his struggle with the disease and embracing queer identity. I like that because it's getting wider recognition because the only way I could learn about any queer history was taking a civil rights elective. And because of my knowledge from that class, I appreciate all of these things so much more. It also has good real world application because the way they taught the class, it associated with other parts of history so I can apply it on the daily. I digress, but if you have a chance to take a civil rights class, take one. Now, the part we've all been waiting for, my absolute favorites. I know I already said that, but now I'm actually gonna talk about them. First and foremost, we need to talk about Lil Nas X and his three outfits. Maybe he does some witchy stuff because how did he find the time to change that many times? Either way, as far as Met fashion goes, he served. It doesn't really fit the theme, 
but the three outfits were well-designed, well-worn, and well-coordinated. As designer fashion, since it was Versace, I really like it. One of the most underrated looks to me was Law Roaches. He wore yellow sunglasses, a black skirt, black leather button-up, and some black go-go boots. The style and the outfit itself are more New York Fashion Week and ready-to-wear than Met Gala, but the look held up enough, in my opinion, to be in my favorites. I know everyone's talking about Jeremy Pope's white corsety look, but it's so good. It gives Met Gala. I know my commentary is getting repetitive, but I do have one more absolute favorite. And if you haven't guessed by now, it is Jordan Roth. This look is just so amazing. It fits the theme and it serves Met Gala. He wore a coat with flare sleeves, a long train. It was covered in American iconography and art designed by Michael Sylvan Robinson. I don't know if people are talking about this, but I want to. His simple hairstyle with the busy coat just gave and gave and didn't stop giving. It's like something you buy because you like, but then you have no place to wear it to, so you just one day decide, boom, the Met Gala. That concludes my review of the Met fashion, but before a music break, I wanted to speak on the Met Gala. All people, creative types or not, look at the Met Gala and idolize the fashion and the event in set itself. But in reality, it's the richest people wearing the nicest clothes, spending millions on a museum that already has millions. We can appreciate the Met and the art and the fashion, but we have to remember that when we see things like AOC's Tax the Rich dress, that these are the rich. We can't forget about the fighting against the protesters to protect the values of the elite. Just some food for thought. Topic 2. Final Girls slash Horror. Gender Relations and Symbolism in the Horror Genre. Our second topic of the month in Morganisms. It's October, meaning Halloween, so horror is very appropriate since it comes with the territory. Although, I am only a moderate horror fan, but I digress. Recently, in September, I read the book Final Girl Support Group by Grady Hendrix, and it delved into some of the way we see horror as well as the gender relations within Final Girl slasher films. To quote the section from it, Women get birth, so the men must settle for death. We make children, they kill them. We create life, they create death. He kills the soft parts of himself, but... No one is left but the monster and the final girl. He can't destroy the essential feminine side of himself. Even destruction can't unmake creation. When you boil everything down, that's what's left. Creation, destruction, female and male, life and death, birth and murder. I want you guys to just sit with that for a minute. Because when I read that, just chilling in my English class, I had to pause for a second. It rocked my brain for a good minute or two. Yes, it heavily disregards the experiences of LGBT people and their experience as a whole, but so does the horror genre, and that's what this quote is referring to. Men and women and life and death in horror. And in this story, it fits very well. If you can get your hands on a copy and read it, 
if you like that sort of thing, I absolutely recommend it. Again, that's Final Girl Support Group by Grady Hendrix. That book actually scared the crap out of me, not gonna lie. Exploring the other side of the coin, where women are the monsters, is one of my favorite videos on YouTube. I recommend it to people all the time, and that is A Monstrous Cuns of Age, Horror and Girlhood by Yara Zaid. Go watch it after this. It really is fantastic. I want this to be more about gender relations in horror, but in order to understand this, it's time for a brief lesson about the roles of women in horror. Horror has always been a groundbreaking-ish genre for women. Women have often been at the forefront of horror since its start, film, and literature. Think Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. To begin with, we began as damsels in distress, because of course we did. But as more women felt represented and more women began getting involved with the production of horror, two distinct categories of women arose. The final girl and the monstrous. Think Needy and Jennifer in Jennifer's Body or Sue and Carrie in Carrie. The survivor or the one inflicting the pain. Despite being revolutionary, sexist trends and backgrounds in these tropes began to be noticed by film scholars. Just to preface this, it takes female characters three times longer to die on screen than male characters, and their deaths are often more graphic and violent. So, no matter the genre, films love hurting women. Glad to know that now. Now that you've had your history lesson and fun statistic, I'm actually going to start talking about the topic. No matter which of these roles a woman plays in a horror film, men often have the most impact on her fate slash development. Whether they be a monstrous or a final girl, various examples of each trope could be Nick Good to the Fear Street women, Billy to Sydney and Scream, the men who sacrificed Jennifer, similar thing with teeth, slashers like Freddy Krueger or Michael Myers, although in some cases a love interest has a significant role, but the roles of women have more precedent. Take Fear Street, 1976, Carrie and the Tommies in both. Although Cindy and Alice were totally down bad for each other in that movie. But anyways, moving on. Despite generally being seen as a more liberating, in quotes, genre for women, both the roles of the monstrous and the final girl have sexist notions when looked at closer. I tried explaining this to my dad and he said I was reading too much into it, but I swear, I have a point. Certainly, the easiest to pinpoint is the monstrous. The trope is most attributed to Stephen King's titular Carrie White, but it goes even further back with characters like the Bride of Frankenstein and lesbian vampire Carmilla. The thing about this trope is that as we watch whatever movie they are in, we feel like we have to fear these women. We fear Danny in Midsommar for her happiness. We fear Carrie White, Jennifer Check, Justine from Raw for the people they kill. Murder, of course, is bad, but subconsciously our minds are getting the message to fear women. Women who put their own happiness first. Sexually empowered women. Women who stand up for themselves. Despite if the narrative were twisted a bit and they were a true final girl, we'd be pulling for them. 
Danny lost her whole family, her relationship, and felt isolated. Her grief is what allows the Harga to get inside her head, and why some people see Midsommar's ending as happy. Carrie came from an incredibly abusive household by, and was treated like she was nothing by everyone around her. She wanted people to remember her name, and they did. Jennifer was stabbed to death by men who wanted to use her for fame. The last thing she saw was literally being mocked. She just used men back. I'm not killing people. I'm killing boys. Although, the best quote in the movie is, I'm going to eat your soul and shit it out, Nikki. Moving on. Justine was forced to eat meat at a hazing, and that led to her transformation in Raw. All of the characters we are taught to fear were only the first victim of the movie. That's why Teeth, 2008, directed by Mitchell Lichtenstein, is so important. If you don't know the concept, the main character has a set of teeth in her vagina that work to protect her from rape, but if she wants to have sex, it's fine, which is a bit on the nose as far as social commentary goes, but the point holds up. What she has as a curse is what protects her from being hurt again, as opposed to the final girl, who is automatically juxtaposed to the monstrous despite their almost identical character arcs. But obviously, the final girl is the better of the two options. According to Wikipedia, which is actually a decent source despite what teachers say, is the last girl or woman alive to confront the killer, ostensibly the one left to tell the story. One of the earliest final girls in film history is Sally Hardesty from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 1974, but if you look back earlier, you'd probably find some before her. I just don't feel like doing that. The character of the final girl is most often a version, which more self-aware horror flicks like Wes Craven's Scream and the 2015 movie Final Girls recognize within their plot. There are many theories and debates as to why this is the case. The quote I initially used is one, Arguments have also been made that this is done to separate the final girl from her peers. And the most common is that the final girl remains a virgin to show that purity can always beat evil. This originated from the strict moral codes Hollywood had to follow in the 1940s through 70s. And like a lot of movie recipes, it was done once and it worked, so it became a genre staple. The final girl becomes stronger and develops throughout the story, like the monstrous, but her purity makes her worthy of being saved and surviving. Now we see the problem. This problem also carries over to race, but that's a topic for another episode. Oftentimes, though, when horror films are written and directed by women, the female characters are more nuanced. This is something that has gotten better over time, but is still not where we need to be. Horror is a genre dominated by women and the monsters that torment us, but only has a handful of directors who are women. Although, I do aim to change that someday. Good examples of developed female characters come from the two horror movies that scare the shit out of me. And I love, but hate. That is Adelaide from Us and Amelia from The Babadook. Only The Babadook was directed by a lady, Jennifer Kent, but both characters blur the line between Monstrous and Final Girl, and that's what makes them so compelling. I think that now directors and writers can see that thought needs to be put into female characters and they need to have personalities, relationships, and overall be complex people because we are.
that wraps up this section, but horror will absolutely be a topic again. Expect relationships, sex and horror, and lack of diversity at some point. But before I go, some recommendations for Halloween. The Witch, Midsommar, Suspiria from 1977, Scream, any version of It, the original Carrie, Ready or Not, Us, and for a book, The Final Girl Support Group by Grady Hendrix, and for a show, What We Do in the Shadows on FX. Topic 3, Lava Lamps. History, fun, and all about lava lamps. Our third topic is, in fact, lava lamps. I just like talking in weird accents, so if you want me to do a whole episode in accent, Give me an accent, and I will attempt to do it. It may be terrible, but it'd be fun. Why lava lamps, you may ask? Well, I just thought of them randomly and figured I could talk about them fairly quickly. So, lava lamps. Lava lamps are decorative lamps invented by Edward Craven Walker in 1963, but became most popular in the 1970s. I have never had a lava lamp myself, but when I was little, my cousin had one, And I would always cut it on because I thought it was just the coolest thing. With the odd shapes and colors, lava lamps work by having wax and translucent liquid in a container above an incandescent light bulb that will heat up. The heat semi-melts the wax and reduces the density of the liquid so that the wax can rise, get cold, fall, and so on and so forth. The lamps were named for a pahauhau lava which goes through the same cycle in a volcano culturally lava lamps began to be associated with social changes and the fluidity of the 1960s drugs sex psychedelia and the new more out there reaches of interior design some people believe that the lava lamp has been given too much symbolic meaning when it comes to things like psychedelic culture and sex it is after all just a lamp right it's not just a lamp Counterculture symbolism is more complicated than that. It's not just eagles, America, boom. People with similar interests and views individually bought them to the point that they are elevated to this status and given the meaning by the people. If you think of just about any subculture, you'll certainly find more examples of this. But the design of the lava lamp was inspired by the space age time period when it was made. During the space age, fashion and decor became brighter, more kitschy, and embellished with plastic and chrome. This is because the people of the time wanted to have durable styles that matched the look of space travel. During the late 50s through early 60s begins the style of retrofuturism that allowed the lava lamp to thrive, leading to the space and associated aesthetics of today. I'd like to thank the random girl in Edge of Urge who I never saw again for that information. She was a real one for the five minutes I knew her. The lamps were seen in futuristic shows like Doctor Who and were thought to reflect the ebb and flow of the cultural changes taking place at the time. Lava lamps, or astro lamps as they were previously known, demonstrate the human desire to surround ourselves with things that catch the eye and that make us smile. Craven Walker's original factory is still up and running in England, continuing to make lava lamps for future generations. Who knew lava lamps were actually a huge deal? Not me, until I was doing research for this. I may buy one soon now that I know all this. It's on my list of things to do before next episode. And with that, I say, 
I hope you enjoyed the very first episode of Morganisms. I'm Morgan Wade, your host, and I'll see you next month.